I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 13th, 2022. Coming up, we talk with Professor Michael Breed about honeybees and other social insects, many of whose populations are in serious decline. But first, a look at some of the recent news in science. In today's feature, you'll hear a lot of amazing abilities of an animal many of us take for granted, the honeybee. In the interview, we touch on some of their incredible biology. Here's a deeper dive into just one aspect of honeybee foraging behavior that illustrates how these tiny creatures can shape our world. It's pretty common knowledge that bees are important pollinators. This means they go from one flower to another of the same species in their quest for nectar, which is a food source for the bees. In this journey, the bees move pollen from one flower to the next. This action fertilizes the eggs of the second flower as the pollen contains the male reproductive cells. When you think about it, pollination means the bees have to be able to recognize the first flower calculate the reward the flower is offering, then, if that positive reinforcement is enough, identify another flower of the same species for a second visit. A new study showed that honeybees rely heavily on flower patterns, not just their colors, when making this search. Now, honeybees don't have very good resolution in their vision. In fact, it's about 100 times less than we humans have, so they can only see a flower's pattern clearly when they're within a few centimeters of it. However, their color vision is much better than ours, and they can utilize wavelengths in the ultraviolet that humans cannot. But some of these colors that are visible to bees are rarely produced by flowers in nature. The researchers from the University of Exeter in the UK trained and tested bees using artificial patterns of shape and color. They found that bees used their ability to see both of these components to identify specific targets. Despite the limited resolution in bee eyes, they rarely ignored the pattern, suggesting that color alone does not lead them to flowers. One consistent feature that was identified in the study is that the outside edges of flowers usually contrast strongly with the plant's foliage, while the center of the flower does not have such strong contrast with the foliage color. This pattern might help bees quickly identify color differences that identify a particular species and then to locate these flowers. The researchers concluded that as a result, flowers don't need too many different petal colors because they can also use patterns to diversify their displays so bees can tell them apart from other species of flowers. And while flowers may be beautiful ornaments to us, to bees they represent vital sources of food both sugar-rich nectar and protein-rich pollen. This means they've played a major role in shaping the evolution of bees' behavior and their sensory and learning abilities. From the plant side of the evolutionary story, the abilities of the bees in turn have shaped the colors and patterns in contemporary flowers. And from the human perspective, we're changing both the abundance of certain plants and thus of pollinators because modern agriculture profoundly influences the availability of plants as well as the populations of insects through chemicals. 
As you'll hear in my interview with Professor Breed, the impact on honeybees and other bees is already rippling through many environments. But this study, which was published last week in the journal Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences, illustrates the behavioral flexibility of bees, meaning that, with some behavioral flexibility on our parts as well, maybe we can all adapt. Honeybees are a ubiquitous part of both urban and rural environments. Because we all grew up with their familiar buzzing, and of course being more than a bit wary of being stung, their decline is all the more shocking. My guest today, Professor Michael Breed of the University of Colorado here in Boulder, has studied honeybees and other bees for over four decades. We touch on reasons for their decline, but also dive into many fascinating aspects of their biology. Welcome to the show, Mike. It's always a treat to talk to you about honeybees. It's nice to be here. And other bees as well, of course. So we can, you know, include some of the many other bees that people see around Colorado. But let's start off talking about honeybees. I've been seeing a lot of them lately. A lot of people in my neighborhood have bee-friendly plants. What's your take on the status of honeybees these days? I, I think they're still very much imperiled. People who manage them responsibly in hives can keep them going, but uh, you do see far fewer bees, and not, not just honeybees, but many kinds of bees. You just don't see as much anymore. You know, for, for honeybees specifically, it's uh, the same threats that people have talked about for a long while. One is changes in land use. Uh, another is diseases and parasites that they're impacted by. And I think on top of that recently, kind of widespread use of new classes of insecticides have impacted them quite a lot. Right. So are you thinking specifically of neonics? Yeah. Yeah. Specifically neonicotinoids. And I I think, you know, one point I just try to make to people is there there's no utility to using those things in suburban or urban lands mm -hmm. they're just it's just not justified and the downstream consequences seem to be pretty huge what exactly do they do to the bees well we we don't exactly know you know there are studies that have shown impacts on uh things like learning orientation you know how they know where they're flying uh but and we don't you know it's not like we have really solid data that says oh it's the neonics that are the source of the problem but there's this accumulation of circumstantial data mm -hmm. uh, which just suggests that the those insecticides have persistent effects right and i know i try to buy plants from local greenhouses that don't use those is there are there other things that people can do to try to prevent you know using them or spreading them around the local environment uh, no i think well the most important thing is to just not not go to the garden store and buy insecticides um they're very rarely implicated in um 
the you know in people's gardens there's there's other approaches and something's really out of hand use an insecticide which is known to be very short lasting doesn't persist in the environment okay so one thing you just said is really interesting i've had a that is about the the learning capabilities of honeybees because i've mm -hmm. had a few conversations lately with friends that yeah. were completely amazed when i explained to them some of the remarkable things honeybees mm -hmm. can do in terms of communicating what they've learned and and just their learning abilities so yeah. talk a little bit about that because it's so cool what they can do the the ability of honeybees to get all kinds of information from their environment and assemble that and act appropriately is it just we i think in the past probably didn't credit insects enough with the ability to do that so there there have been some recent studies that have gotten uh, a lot of attention from the press uh, about honeybees being able to uh, to use counting skills mm -hmm. to uh, to solve problems which is pretty incredible I, I'm pausing here because it's really a large, mm -hmm. uh, a, a large question. There's there's a new book out by a scientist named Lars Chitka, talks in incredible detail about learning, memory, and cognition. Mm -hmm. uh, the 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 feats that they can accomplish are just incredible. And and it's what one really interesting thing to me about insect societies is you don't have there's no individual in the background absorbing all the information and directing every animal what to do. Uh, each animal is just responding to the cues in its immediate environment, but the, their ability to respond in very sophisticated ways to those cues is what's so, so astounding. And it's been, gosh, close to a century now since the Nobel Prize was awarded for the discovery of their their basic dance form of communication. Yeah. And I still tell people about it that haven't heard about it. And that's a little <laughs> surprising to me, but I guess, you know, in the, when you're immersed in the world of animal behavior, you think everybody knows all these cool stories, oh, but sure. you don't really know all these cool stories. Yeah. So could you just encapsulate that <laughs> one really briefly? Cause that's a very wonderful story too. When a bee leaves the hive to search for, uh, for flowers, for food to eat, if it finds a good patch of flowers, then it'll collect some, but when it returns to the hive, it dances. The dances contain a lot of information about the location of, of that food. The, the bees encode the distance to the food, the direction to the food, and uh, something about the quality of the food. So amazing, given the, I know, you we, you recall when we first met, we were dissecting honeybee brains. We know how little those brains are. Yeah. They can they can do a lot of processing right. and memory stuff. Right. But what about some of the solitary bees? I have noticed that there's fewer bumblebees around this year, which yeah. makes me very sad. Right. Yeah, I've I've noticed in, in my yard, far fewer bumblebees over the last few years. And just solitary bees in general have kind of disappeared from the landscape so it, it, at this point if i see a bee in our in my yard it's likely to be a honeybee mm -hmm. but it's likely from a, a managed colony there's mm -hmm. several people in my neighborhood who who have colonies and 
uh, we don't really know why uh, there seems to be such a uh, a startling disappearance of other kinds of bees uh but you know certainly circumstantial evidence uh, points to the neonicotinoids. and can you speculate about the effect of the disappearance of those non-honeybee species the native species on the environment here in colorado well it's, it's loss of pollinators mm -hmm. and there, there's some plants out there where honeybees work just fine there, there are other plants that are uh, native plants that are co-adapted co with uh, specific native pollinators. And when the native pollinators are gone, then pollination fails. And so, it, you know, it, it can be a big thing. And we, you know, really need to, some good studies that assess uh, how these systems are paying out for, for both the bees and the plants they pollinate. Yeah, it's kind of that domino effect that when you take out one species, then you start taking out all the other yeah. in the web yeah. around yeah. it. But I'm a little hopeful because, you know, just during that one year of shutdown with COVID, so many things seem to rebound. So they did. I'm guardedly hopeful yeah. that maybe we can mm -hmm. have that same effect. So any other cool things about bees that you want to <laughs> talk about? I mean, there's so many things that it's hard to know where to begin. Boy, there is in the honeybee world the idea that uh, that honeybees might be on some level cognitive is gaining uh, a lot more acceptance right now, mm -hmm. and we, we don't really know how far that extends. You know, there's been uh, been an argument made for perception of fear and pain by honeybees. And, uh, you know, that sort of extends our concept of the cognitive realm of animals to include species that we wouldn't have thought would be cognitive. And that seems completely reasonable to me. I mean, it's not so long since we, many of us didn't accept that other mammals had cognitive mm -hmm. abilities and emotions similar to yeah. ours and yeah. our brains are structured like ours. So in critters that have brains that are structured very differently, like I was surprised to learn that the structure of bird brains is very different than ours. They can pack a lot more information to a much smaller uh -huh. um, size skull, which makes sense because they've been selected to be light because they fly. Yeah. I think flying insects similarly have been selected to be really light and efficient. So that, that all makes sense to me. And I, I love that idea because they seem like not little flying automatons. They seem like <laughs> no. you know, little creatures that are processing information in a very rational sense. Yes. Yeah. And, and very smart about it. Right. But they also do things that are so foreign to us, like um, the story of when the young queens emerge in the spring and they just duke it out and you know all yeah. the sisters <laughs> kill each other so yeah maybe just talk about that a little bit because that's I kind of a wild think, story uh, so so in the in the spring um an established honeybee colony raises somewhere typically in the range of five to maybe 15 new queens okay and they're within the hive they're very distinctive because they have uh, special cells made of wax that are built in which the queen larvae are, are reared. Um, so you can you can just open a hive and look and see how many queens are being reared. 
in the end, the objective for the bees is for the old queen to leave with a swarm. Okay, so she takes half the workers and go finds a new place to live. And then one of the new queens takes over. And uh, it's that, that process of winnowing down from many new queens to, to only one that's, that's fascinating. That, uh, you know, sometimes uh, the new queen that comes out first just goes around and destroys the cells in which the others are being reared. But other times you get more than one new queen coming out and they do fight to the death. So you end up with one, one queen in the colony. And this is a really interesting phenomenon because we think about fights to the death usually being in males in species uh -huh. fighting over females. But yeah. I mean, clearly these females are fighting over resources because the high right. will only keep one of the queen. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's just an interesting thing that, that it, happens here. It, it is, yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, so when you, when you see a swarm of bees um, in the spring, uh, likely you're seeing a, a queen that's a, a year or, or more old with with a lot of workers. And if you traced back to the, the hive where they'd come from, you'd find a new queen or multiple new queens uh, duking it out. Now, once the identity of the new queen's established, then she flies out to mate and she'll mate oh, eight, 10, maybe 15 times in the span of a few days. Store all of the semen from those matings. And then she doesn't mate again in her entire lifetime. She may live up to five or six years and laying literally hundreds of thousands of eggs uh, using semen stored from those very few matings early in her life. So these queens, the, the term is actually a little misleading to people because we tend to think of queen as a very regal, honored um, yeah. persona, but in the honeybee hive, like in many other insects that have these reproductive females, yeah. she's just a big egg-laying machine. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, everybody in the society has a role. Uh, evolution has shaped how they perform their roles. And that, yeah, comes, back to that point that they uh, the, the, there's no omniscient director just being in charge and telling everybody what to do. Which um, makes them even more remarkable that there isn't, that they're all just working it out on some preordained mm -hmm. selected program. Yeah. So in the, in, in, um, beekeeping in the beekeeping world mm -hmm. will those multiple queens be collected and um used for yeah so people who rear uh, bees for as a business so they uh, make artificial swarms to sell to people who want to keep bees will set up special hives where they give the opera the bees the opportunity to rear a lot of queens and then um put as the individual queens uh, mature, they'll um, they'll put them in what's called a, a nucleus, a small colony, and she'll fly out from the from there to mate, and then they can take the mated queens and sell them with um, artificial swarms. Oh, they actually let them fly out and mate. They don't artificially inseminate them. 
you can artificially inseminate bees, but um, uh, to get a queen that's going to be a good layer for a sure. long time, sure. natural mating is really better. I, yeah, yeah. Well, so as long as we're talking about mating, I guess we should tell people about the situation of males in honeybees, because this is oh. a whole story too. <laughs> oh, well, the, the males are produced in the spring also um because they need to be around at the same time as the uh as the queens and uh, they fly out from their their colony and there there are spots where the males we call them drones the drones tend to aggregate so you may see hundreds of drones flying in a in a certain location and we actually those seem to be the same more or less from year to year but we don't know what causes the drones um you know be able to establish the it's different animals from year to year what causes them to be able to establish in the same spot some people think it has something to do with the earth's geomagnetic field that there are certain points of geomagnetic reference that they just use to uh to congregate but uh, so you imagine hundreds of drones um uh, milling around in the in the air you know sometimes 50 or 100 yards up in the air and the queen looking to to mate flies in, into that cloud of drones uh and then it's just chaos because the 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 drones are all trying to to get to the queen first. Uh, when a dro drone does manage to mate with the queen, uh, they lock genitals. Uh, then the uh, uh, once mating is done, the drone's genitals rip out of the male. So he's done. He's not, not going to mate again. And uh, generally, the drones don't survive long after that. <laughs> and evolution has shaped them to do this because their hope you know speaking teleologically mm -hmm. is that the presence of that massive tissue in the female reproductive tract will block any other males from getting at her but of yeah. course the females have counter interests and they've evolved mechanisms i don't know, know what they must have some kind of muscular mm -hmm. system that ejects that oh she actually just lands somewhere reaches around with her mouth okay, okay. and um pulls it out and then she flies off and mates with another male yeah and you said she mates with 10 or 15 males and so she can store a lot of sperm because each sperm yeah. sack must contain millions of yeah and then she can store that for years mm -hmm. yeah which is pretty incredible yeah. because it, it's not like she has a deep freezer right right in her abdomen uh, so that uh that semen is stored at you know kind of normal outdoor temperatures mm -hmm. somehow the the sperm survives just for years yeah they're they're just amazing animals well mike it's always a pleasure to talk to you about bees so hopefully we'll do this again in a couple of years and give people some some more bee stories but thanks for uh for taking the time to talk yeah. great thank you beth that was Michael Breed, University of Colorado faculty and bee researcher, discussing the amazing abilities of the tiny honeybee. We'll link to his website and to sources mentioned in the interview in the show notes.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm currently the executive producer and I produce this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from The Flight of the Bumblebee by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to sites mentioned in the show, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.